Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Hey, church. This Sunday begins a brand new worship series for Galileo Church. We're calling it One Hell of a Week. And it's going to go from now all the way through Lent and into the Holiest Week and on to Easter. The events of Jesus' last week of earthly life and ministry before his execution, we're just stretching out those events over several Sundays. And so today, we are pretending that it's Palm Sunday. We know that it's not, but for us, it is. And normally on Palm Sunday, uh, we would begin outdoors outside the Big Red Barn and we would give everybody a palm branch or several palm branches that we got from a florist. And we would read, we would sort of shout at each other Psalm 118, and then we would sort of parade around the property and come into the Big Red Barn. For tonight, you're going to have to use your imagination. When it's your turn to say the traditional response, God's steadfast love endures forever, I invite you just to raise your sprig or your branch and wave it in the air like a flag or maybe like one of those big foam rubber number one hands for a sports ball thing or maybe like a sparkler on the 4th of July. When it's your turn to respond, in other words, just wave it like you're in a parade. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for God is good. God's steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say... God's steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my might. God has become my salvation. God's steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. God's steadfast love endures forever. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. God's steadfast love endures forever. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. God's steadfast love endures forever. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God's steadfast love endures forever. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. God's steadfast love endures forever. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and God has given us light Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. God's steadfast love endures forever. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for God is good, for God's steadfast love endures forever. Amen. From the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. 
When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it. He will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
I was, Steph. I was singing it really loud. I know you know. <laughs> First, a Katie explanation of why we're doing this worship series the way we're doing it. In the church I grew up in, we killed Jesus a lot. Over and over and over again, Sunday after Sunday, we remembered him bruised and bloodied, stoic and strong, forgiving us our sins by appeasing God's wrath because he was way better than we would ever be. And even if we would never be as good as he was, maybe we would be a little less bad if we remembered that perpetually. So we don't kill Jesus very much at Galileo Church. We mostly remember him vibrant and shimmering with the rain of God dripping from his fingertips and hems. In our mind's eye, he is smart and snarky and taking no shit from the powers that be. And at the exact same time, he is compassionate to a fault for the ones everybody else avoids. Snot-nosed kids, contagious exiles, women whose bodies are either commodities or problems, anybody overwhelmed by grief or pain or loneliness or shame. It is our deep attention to his first life that helps us see him in his second life, his resurrected life, free of the tomb and the grave clothes, free of the systems that really wanted him to stay dead, and finally free even of the gravitational pull of the earth's surface. And we can see that he is still very much present in life as the spirit of the living Christ that blows into his friends like a hurricane and turns their world upside down, making them kind and strong just like he was, making us kind and strong just like he was, so that he lives on, not just in our memories, but in our life together, vibrant and shimmering. It's not that we're avoiding the reality of Jesus' death. To get to that second life, that resurrected life, from the first life of compassion and controversy, we know, we know he had to die. And so we pay close attention also to the foreshadowing that we find throughout the gospel narratives. The religious establishment that just gets madder and madder at him his geographic proximity to Jerusalem and all the danger that waits for him there, his friends and family worrying that he's saying too much, saying it too loud in their fear that the empire will overhear and they'll all be in hot water. Our usual practice at Galileo has been to take a deep dive into Jesus' death and the days leading up to it in the week just before Easter, 
the holiest week, we call it. And for the holiest week, we go all out, bushels of palms for Palm Sunday, a not-quite-Passover potluck for Maundy Thursday, a heart-rending Tenebrae Good Friday service, followed by a raucous and heartfelt Jesus Christ Superstar sing-along. Then a quiet, sober Saturday spent waiting at home. And finally, finally, a sunrise Easter celebration with lanterns floating on the water to invite the actual daylight. I mean, it is all the extras we can think of to honor the memory of Jesus' suffering and death, both the injustice of it and the weird beauty of it, and God's own willingness to turn our shit into our salvation. It is indeed the holiest week. This year, though, the reality is we're spending our second Holy Week in a row in the exile of pandemic quarantine. We're going to try some stuff for sure for the actual events of the actual week, which is coming up pretty soon. But in the meantime, it feels like the strangeness of the season gives us permission, maybe even a mandate, to just slow things down to really take our time with the events of that historic Holy Week. We've lost so much this year, but one thing we seem to have more of than ever is time. Time for contemplation or Netflix. But contemplation is better. So our plan for this worship series is to stretch our commemoration out over several Sundays leading up to Easter so that each piece of Jesus' very last days gets its due. Notably, this is quite similar to what each of the four gospel writers does. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each tell about Jesus' ministry fairly quickly with representative encounters and conversations, broad summaries of travel and teachings, moving fast through the months of his ministry until they get to the final episodes. Luke spends about a quarter of his total gospel on the notable events of the single last week of Jesus' life. In Matthew, from the time Jesus rides into Jerusalem straddling the backs of two animals, a colt and a donkey, to the time he comes out of the tomb to greet Mary Magdalene and the fan fave, the other Mary, it's about 35% of Matthew's whole gospel. John comes in at a whopping 40% from Palm Parade to Resurrection. And Mark, Mark, the little gospel that is our touchstone for this liturgical year, clocks in comparably at 38%, starting with the story we read tonight from Mark chapter 11 and ending with a truncated empty tomb story that gets only eight verses. Mark has this storytelling tick in the early pages of his gospel where he inserts the word immediately about every third verse. So the pace of the story is quickety-quick. Jesus moves fast, talks fast, heals fast, forgives fast, and his friends and enemies have to haul ass to keep up, as do Mark's readers. 
But when Mark gets to that final week, the telling becomes incredibly detailed and the immediately's all but drop out. There are just two left, two of them in the rest of the gospel. They were both in our reading tonight. Jesus tells his friends that they'll find the colt immediately upon entering that village and says that if they're questioned, they should promise that he'll bring it back immediately. But once he enters the city, time seems to slow down. Even Jesus seems to slow down, taking a good look around the temple and then going back out to Bethany for, I guess, a good meal and a good night's sleep before he takes his next provocative steps. Now, I know that is a weird quantification of storytelling, all those percentages of gospel pages, but I just want you to see what I see, that the gospel writers were dedicated to their readers' understanding of how it came to pass that our Messiah was nailed to a tree, still loving us, while the life breath eked out of him. There is no need to hurry past this part, they tell us unanimously. Hear us, hear us well. The life he lived, as beautiful as it was, landed him here, in the sights of the civic and religious status quo, with a big old target on his back, he was never going to make it out of there alive. You already knew that. So here's how it went down. Pay attention. So that's what we're going to do over these next five Sundays. Pay attention the way Mark has asked us to. Reading almost all of chapters 11 through 16. Not every word because it really is too much for our time together. But as each day's sun sets and rises in Mark's story, we will linger to consider what each day of that last week held for Jesus and therefore holds for us before we all wake up to the bright sun of Easter morning. Now, here's the sermon. None of that first part should count on the clock. I'm reclaiming my time. <laughs> Royal courts throughout history have sometimes included court jesters, professional clowns, or designated fools to entertain powerful people. In the English courts of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, jesters were known for acrobatics and magic tricks, riddles and slapstick. But they were also given tremendous license to poke fun at powerful people. It was dangerous work playing the fool. One day you could be doing a hilarious impression of some stuffed shirt who was close to the king or even the king's own self, if you were careful. You could get away with it. And then the next day you could find your neck on the guillotine if you misjudged how far you could go underneath your jingle bell hat and clown makeup. Now, with the court jester in your mind's eye, turn your attention now to Jesus, getting ready to stage his own satirical clown show in full view of the public and the powers. 
He's just outside Jerusalem, the city rebuilt about 500 years ago by Ezra and Nehemiah and all those exiles returning from Babylonian captivity. He has been warned not to go there. The religious establishment is terrified that he's going to ignite a rebellion against the occupying empire, trashing all their efforts to make nice with the Romans, play by the rules, keep the peace that is not quite shalom, but probably better than what will happen if Rome decides to put its boot down. And because they are scared, they are willing to do anything to shut him up. Anything. He knows this, and still, he's going in. Up to now, Jesus has been mostly low-key in his public appearances. Introverts rejoice to see themselves in our Lord for basically the whole gospel up to now. He escapes large crowds to go off and pray by himself. He pleads with people he's just helped not to tell anybody it was him what done it. He moves quickly from one village to another to avoid getting swamped by the local needs of any given place. He sails from one side of the sea to the other, back and forth, seeking to escape the trap of the crowd. And when those crowds offer him allegiance, offer him the makings of popular power, he demurs. He does not want to be famous. He just wants to get the word out that despite all appearances to the contrary, God is still in charge. The reign of God is at hand, he says, so close you can reach out and touch it, change your life so that this will be good news for you. And then he moves on. Until today. A few weeks before today, he started telling his closest friends that he's about to relinquish control of this bus. The son of humanity is going to suffer, he told them. I'll be rejected by the religious leaders. I'll be put to death by those with jurisdiction to do it. Being raised from the dead is also in the mix, so far as I've heard. But honestly, none of this is in my hands. He says all of this, more or less, in Mark chapter 8. And again in Mark chapter 9, and a third time in Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them again what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Humanity will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. It's the handing over that gets me every time. One of the things I have loved about Jesus' life is how he's never not in control of a situation. He forgives when they expect him to heal. He flouts religious laws like Sabbath keeping because he thinks the laws are supposed to make people's lives better. Imagine that. He never answers the question that he's asked, but instead poses a better question, the question you should have asked, and then answers it exactly as he wants to. 
for that beautiful mind, that powerful spirit, that gentle body to be handed over to rough treatment unto death. The shoving and slapping and spitting, the lying and laughing, the accusing and beating and stripping and nailing and lifting and leaving. But he has me getting ahead of our story He has not relinquished control just yet. He has not yet been handed over. Before that happens, he will, well, he will draw more attention to himself than he has during his entire ministry up to now. He will put on a military parade in his own honor. You know, a military parade where the weapons of war roll off of the bases where they're usually kept out of our sight, surrounded by soldiers in formation, marching to the beat of big brass bands, filling the air with patriotic melodies, the flags of national identity waving in the air. Or in the ancient world of Jesus's life, a king and his army, after triumph in battle, returning to the capital city, still wearing their armor, riding their proud war horses and brandishing their weapons, battle horns blowing, prisoners of war marching to their death, wrapped in chains, displayed as a signal of the returning army's great power. The citizens of the capital lined the road to shout their hurrahs, welcoming the king and all the wealth his winning has secured. So Jesus, the jester, goes, hey, I got an idea. If it's the reign of God we're here to announce, let's do it the way kings do it. Let's make a parade, shall we? But with a twist. Could a couple of y'all go quietly into that little town over there and snag me a ride? Here's what I have in mind. And what does he have in mind? Well, John implies that it was a donkey. Mark and Luke's reporters say that it was a spindly-legged little colt that's never had a human sit on its back before. How do you think that's going to go? Matthew goes for broke with both a donkey and a colt, just to be sure. Listen, it matters less what the animal was than what it was not. It was not a proud war horse, not a steed, not the mount of a typical king returning to his capital to receive the accolades of his citizens. Whatever Jesus is riding, I'm pretty sure his feet are dragging in the dusty road like a grown-up riding a little child's bicycle. It's absurd. And it gets absurder. See, that's not an army behind him. Those are the losers who follow him everywhere he goes because they got nothing better to do and nowhere better to go. And those aren't weapons people are wielding. Those are branches. They just broke off yonder trees just a minute ago. And that's not a red carpet. And those are not flags. Those are the cloaks of people who just got here and want to join in the fun. And those are not brass bands or battle horns. Those are just people singing and shouting and laughing together at the joke. Because this parade, make no mistake, is a joke. It's the kind of joke that a court jester would tell. 
It's a fun-poking satire of people in power. It's a clown copying the gestures of a king behind his back. It's a slapstick acrobat popping wheelies on a tricycle as if his war horse is bucking and stamping. Come to think of it, I think if they'd had tricycles back then, Jesus might have ridden one of those to lead his palm parade into Jerusalem. Picture that. Perfect. Because now, see, now he wants people to look at him and pay attention. Oh, my heart, my extroverted heart. No more retreats from the public eye. No more quiet miracles on the down low. Jesus is coming out, and it is fabulous, and it is funny, and oh, what hilarity they are enjoying at the expense of the powers. This is Jesus, both our king and our court jester. Almost as paradoxical as his full divinity and equally full humanity. How? It would be a mistake for us to love this parade too much, though. Our laughter blinding us to the reality that uh, he's kind of poking fun at us, too, right? I mean, we work our whole lives to pay taxes, to keep our empire's army, military, the largest and most expensive military the world has ever seen, in tip-top shape depending on whose data you use, about one in five of our tax dollars are spent on soldiers and weapons. Our own sense of national security, not something most of us are willing to give up. Be careful. When the court jester starts clowning around, it could be us he's telling the serious truth about. The thing to keep in mind about Jesus, the jester king, is this. Everybody, absolutely everybody, is invited to his parade. All you have to do is show yourself willing to be silly and seen. Wave a branch. Lay down your coat. Sing like nobody's watching. Call your congressperson again. Use social media to preach the gospel. Give away more money than you pay in taxes. Make another public comment in a school board meeting. Show up for that family that doesn't know how to love you and hasn't really tried to learn. Do that job you are not paid enough for with all your might. Be unreasonably kind to people who are nasty to you. You fool. We are fools for Christ, said the Apostle Paul of himself and his fellow workers. Fools for Christ. In order to follow more closely in the footsteps of Jesus, the jester king. Because, beloveds, the world we keep on constructing and reconstructing for each other is absurd. A world where scarcity and isolation and racism and poverty and violence feel normal and somehow necessary, uh, it's when we learn to laugh at that that we can finally appreciate the seriousness of Jesus' actual claim. 
that there is another way, and it is the way of God, and it makes everything else look ridiculous. See, he would do anything to show us that, anything. Ride a trike, call attention to himself, be handed over, anything to show us what he needs us to see. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.